All right, looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started again in our study in Amos. Where we had left off last week, it was kind of around like 312, 313, somewhere around there. But since we kind of left off mid-argument, we're going to go ahead and back up and kind of start again at chapter 3, verse 1, and then move through, cover a few more things in there, and then get going, see how far we get through 3, chapter 4, and possibly even chapter 5, but... We'll see as we go. Before that, we'll begin with our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so a little bit of refresher of where we've been in Amos chapters 1 and 2. So remember, he has like those eight oracles. The first six are against those different nations around. Remember, he kind of started with the nations that were furthest away from the people of Israel. They're all kind of excited of, yeah, you go get them, Amos, of, yeah, you know, the Lord's going to send this fire upon them. And he starts kind of closing in the snare, gets, you know, pronouncing judgments against nations that are a little closer to home, but still, they're the pagan nations, and they're like, yeah, you go get them, Amos. And then most of all, the oracle number seven goes after Judah. They're just ecstatic at this point of, yeah, you get them, because they've rejected the law of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 4. So they're super excited. Again, he kind of has these seven oracles, and they're like, okay, seven's a number of completeness. That's great. Now where's the gospel? You know, show us how great we are. He says here, I have one more oracle, and it's actually for you. And this is going to be the longest one of all, and we're going to spend quite a while speaking about judgment against you. So we have this eighth oracle in chapter 2 verse 6 and just goes on and on about all these things that they've done and these destruct, destruction that's going to happen and so we're still picking up where we that's we'd ended with the eighth oracle at the end of chapter 2 we're still continuing on with this judgment against Israel in chapter 3 1 and so it starts out as hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. And so the word for here, the Shema, is used also in Deuteronomy 4, 6, or sorry, 6, 4, of hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so it's this hear, listen to what I'm going to say. In Deuteronomy, it's listen, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hold to that. But now, hear, listen, Israel, this word that the Lord has spoken against you. The name is continues, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So here, the word that is used for this people of Israel, this family of them, it's not this chosen people of God, this holy nation that we've seen all through all in the past of this is God's holy people set aside, but rather the word that's used there is the same word that's used in chapter 3, verse 2, of all the families of the earth. And so instead of this chosen nation, they've now been demoted to just another one of, just like these other pagan nations, this clan of people there. And so we see this brought out of, you know, all this guilt that they have done against the Lord and they brought upon this judgment upon themselves for that. Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, in the biggest salvation event of the Old Testament, the Lord delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. Continues on in verse 2. You only have I known, so that language of knowing, same as Adam knew his wife Eve, this intimate relationship of, so you only have I known, people of Israel, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The word for punishing, so he is visiting his people. 
So that can be either good or bad, depending on where you stand with God. You have Genesis 21 of the Lord visiting Sarah. It's gospel of, here, you're going to conceive and bear Isaac. The promise has been fulfilled. But here the Lord is visiting him for the people of Israel for all of their iniquities. So rather, watch out, the Lord's coming. You're going to have to answer to him. So it's not these great words of comfort. Then he continues on with seven questions. Again, as we continue on through Amos, he's just very in tuned with numerology. Again, whether or not we're reading too much into it, some may argue we are, but take it for what it's worth. But he's very, being very particular in how he's using how many different times he's repeating certain phrases. So it's not like he's just kind of scratching this on a piece of paper, just kind of last night, you know, day before papers do. He's putting a lot of intention into this of he's asking these seven questions, this complete number of do two walk together unless they agree to meet? Of course not. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. And finally, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. He's building up to this final point, starting out just do two walk together, then the pray. So he's building to this one final question of does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Of course not. So we see that all throughout Scripture, especially in Jeremiah six nineteen, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. So this disaster that comes upon them is the fruit of what they've done. They've brought it upon themselves. As we continue on in Amos, we'll see all these things that the children of Israel are doing worshiping all these false gods, sacrificing at all these different altars. And so they're deserting the one who's known them only. So the Lord's saying, I've known you, I've known you only, and this is how you're repaying me. Here are the fruits of what you have done. You've made your bed, here it is for you. So that's what he's getting at here. So we continue on in verse 7 of chapter 3. For the Lord does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? So again, get that image of the lion roaring to be afraid of him, and the Lord pictured as that lion roaring, that you should fear him. The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. That word for proclaim is still Shammah, so They're causing to hear, so proclaim, cause them to hear in the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So they've continuously been in this sin that now they don't even know how to do right at this point. And we hit on this last week, but just kind of carrying on the argument, seeing where Amos is going so we don't lose sight of his overall argument. Verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord God, an adversary who is unnamed shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. So we talked about, you know, the lion just rescuing the two legs or the piece of an ear. Well, the lion or the piece of the couch is all but done for. But this is just a little remnants, this little evidence of, well, I didn't steal your animal. Here's evidence that the lion got it or whatever. Here's a leg or here's an ear or even here's a piece of the bed. But yet there's still that little bit of remnant left. There's still a piece left, as we'll see the remnant of Israel will be left. But nevertheless, 
a lion, mouth of a lion, the two legs are just a piece of an ear. Well, they're pretty, that animal's dead. It's all but done for near total destruction. You know, it's, if they just have an ear left, well, there's no animal there, but there's still that little bit to hold on to. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Here we get into the new material now, into verse 13. Again, that word for hear, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. So we have this language of testifying. So the Lord here is picture kind of like a courtroom that's going on. So the Lord is giving all this evidence of, I have been faithful, I have done all of these things to you. Here's exhibit A, B, C, D. You want me to keep going? I can. And this is what you've done to repay me. So he's going to continue to lay out all these things that he's done for them, all these calls to repentance that we'll see in chapter 4. So again, Lord, the Lord is giving this to them of repent. You haven't turned back in the past. Here's destruction coming to you for the lack of repentance. So the Lord is giving this kind of court case, putting into evidence all of these things. So the God of hosts, the Sabaoth, God of armies, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So in verse 14 there, it's not if I punish or when if I decide I'll punish, but that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions. Punishment is coming. Repent. It's still coming, though, here. So the, pun- the day that I punish, I will punish the altars of Bethel. So on your maps, for those who may have it still, so we've got Israel and Judah, so it's right in the middle, about, I don't know how many miles, that may be 10 miles or so, north of Jerusalem. So it's in that area. If you recall, Jacob, whenever he had his dream, remember, that was the Old Testament reading, was it last, week before last, something like that, was our Old Testament reading, was Jacob's dream. So then that's at Bethel. And so Bethel is the house, Baith, Baeth, Ale of God, so the house of God. And so he will punish the altars of Bethel, which is not where they were to conduct worship. They were to conduct all these sacrifices and everything, you know, in Jerusalem at the temple, but yet they were doing it at Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So they're wealthy enough. They have these winter houses, these summer houses. The houses have ivory and all these things. Recall a couple of chapters before, it was the Israelites and all these people, all these other nations were punishing the poor, extorting them for their own riches, We'll see that here at the start of chapter 4, repeated again. Of They've extorted the poor for their own personal gain to have these summer and winter houses and houses of ivory. But all that's going to come to an end, declares the Lord. And we'll continue to see this on in chapter 4, but before we move on, I want to pause. We did a quick sprint review of last week, but if there are any other outstanding questions, got one. Oh, just a comment that mm-hmm. the uh, the remnant language in three twelve is it um, where he says uh, uh, a, the mouth of the lion of two legs uh, or a piece of an ear. It made me think of uh, where Jesus restores the ear of that Peter, mm-hmm. I guess, cuts yeah. when he's being mm-hmm. um, arrested, and how he he heals them. Uh, in Luke, I don't know, just mm-hmm. just made me think of that is all. Yeah, that is a fun connection there. And we'll see the language of remnant, I think, appear three separate times in Amos, either used in a positive or negative sense. But yeah, it is alluding to that remnant in verse 12 and 13 there. 
So you had an interesting connection with the ear of, you know, in the garden there. That's interesting. Any other comments, reflections before we move on to chapter four? All right. So again, four one, the same language of here. Here, this word, this is Amos speaking, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So here, with the end of verse 1, it's clear that these cows of Bashan are these women that are oppressing the poor. They are crushing the needy. They're saying to the husbands, bring that we may drink. So they're these drunkards just wanting to drink more and more oppress the poor, and do all these things. So he calls them these cows of Bashan. So we have that same language of Bashan, same reference to that in Psalm 22, of that Christ, you know, is praying on the cross. So we have that same language of the, I can't remember the exact phraseology, but it's referencing Bashan. So the commentators make a connection there of these same people who are wagging their heads at Jesus at the foot of the cross, are these same kind of cows of Bashan, these wicked people who are just in it for drunkenness and oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. So it makes a fun little connection there, potentially. But again, Amos speaking that way. Verse 2, the Lord has sworn by his holiness, the kadosh, the kadosh, the holiness, that behold, the days are coming upon you, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So again, remember, he's speaking to the women of this, of these people here. So they are the ones that will be led away with hooks, even the last with fish hooks. So presumably, presumably, English isn't working this morning. They are, the men have gone away. They've either been all destroyed in a battle, or even if some of them survived after battle, they were likely struck down because, well, if you conquer a city, you don't want fighting age males to be left over. So it's only these women that are left. So they'll lead them away with hooks, even last with fish hooks. So again, as you would have, you know, after you go fishing, have all the fish hanging on. That's imagery that he's pulling out here of them being led away into exile in that manner. Verse 3, And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now here we get some amazing sarcasm here, of come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. So it's this idea of this calling to worship of come, you know, let us worship the Lord. So he's doing a mockery of this calling to worship of, well, they're doing all this pagan worship, worshiping at all these other altars. He says, come on to Bethel and transgress. You know, come on, let's worship and multiply our transgressions all the more. Why not at this point? Because they've clearly been fine with it all along. So here, let's have a call to worship and to multiply our transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So it's not the sacrifices of the Lord, not the sacrifices that are pleasing to him, but your own personal sacrifices and your tithes that you think are going to get you places with God. They're all just vain at this point. They're all your tithes and your offerings. And we'll see this pick up in chapter 5, same language. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for, you lo- for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. You love to do all of this. You love to have this pagan worship. Why not increase your transgressions? Go to all these pagan altars. Why not at this point? Go and worship and increase your transgressions because you just are loving to do that so much and despise my preaching and my word. This is what you love to do, so go do it at this point. So just raving sarcasm here. He continues on. He doesn't even let up there. 
in verses 6 through 12. So we're going to have several different kind of number schemes to keep in mind through 6 through 12. So you'll notice as we read through, he repeats five separate times of, yet you did not return to me. So we have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, God's law, the Torah. They're, they've rejected this five separate times. He's done these things, yet they didn't return. 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 Five separate times that he's called them to return, and they have not heeded that call. But then as we go through, we'll see these seven plagues that he has put them under. And we'll see this as we continue on. We'll point them out each time. Starting out in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. So cleanness of teeth isn't kind of pearly white teeth after going to the dentist but rather it's the cleanness of teeth because you don't have any food. So your teeth are clean because you don't have any food in your teeth to stay there and make them dirty. So this cleanness of teeth is this emptiness that they don't have anything to eat. And we see that in the second line there, of this lack of bread in all your places. So yet they didn't return to him. So he's, I myself gave you, is in the Hebrew language there. I myself gave you this, and yet you didn't return to me. So we have the second plague. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So the Lord withholds rain from one city versus another, so he's saying, I have the power to do this. You want some rain for your crops so you don't have clean teeth anymore? You want some food? Well, you didn't return to me. So I have the power over creation. I have the power to make rain or withhold rain. And you're not returning to me. I've shown you all this power before, and you have not returned to me over and over and over again. So he continues on in verse 8. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. So they'd wander from one city to another. They still wouldn't be satisfied and all that. And yet, they did not, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, Yet you did not return to me. So he's attacking their agriculture again. This mildew, they are being devoured by locusts. So all these fig trees, olive trees, they're being devoured and struck down. Yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence, so diseases, after the manner of Egypt. So we have the reference back to the plagues of Egypt here of, hey, remember what I did to the wicked people under Pharaoh? Because they didn't let you go. They did not heed my word to let my people go. Now you're no better than them. I'm sending these same plagues that I sent to Egypt. I'm sending them to you. Not exactly one-to-one correlation there, but the same manner of plagues that once were to set you guys free from bondage. Hey, remember I set you guys free from bondage. Did you forget that? Well, now I'm going to send these same plagues to you for your unrepentance, your lack of returning to me. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils because of all the death that was there. Yet you did not return to me. So it's a fourth denial, their fourth rejection, not returning to the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. So he overthrew some of them as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So we call there the total destruction 
for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire that rained down. Yet there were a few that were saved, Lot and his family. So that is what we're seeing in the second half of verse 11. You were as a brand plucked out of the burning. So you bring the brand out. So there's saving from this fire. So they were the brand plucked out of that in order to continue their line. Yet you did not return to me. So again, he's bringing out these images of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of, hey, remember, I'm the one that sent all that destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah for what they did. Hey, here's what you're doing. Hmm. Maybe watch out. Maybe repent. Maybe return to me. But yet you did not return to me. So he's not letting up here at all. So again, we have this five-fold rejection. And then it culminates in verse 12. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So previously, all of these, but you did not return to me. It's the plural of you, plural. You guys did not return to me. But now, therefore, I will do this to you, individual, singular. I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. It's a frightening statement coming from the mouth of the Lord of, hey, I've done all these things, but that's nothing compared to preparing to meet me, seeing me face to face and me judging you for what you have done. So they would long to have this pestilence, all the locusts devouring their crops. He says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Just scary statement for them. Prepare to meet me because you have rejected me all these times. Prepare. Yeah, very. You know, in my lifetime, the closest thing to this was the 9-11 attack. And uh, I know there was questions in the media, well, where was your God in, in this? Mm-hmm. And uh, we can see clearly here he was right in the middle of it. He was mm-hmm. bringing or wanting this to bring people to repentance. And I saw inklings of it. I don't know what your perspective is, but people were filling churches for a couple of weeks, you know, and praying, and then just evaporated. It seemed like it was very short again. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to 9-11. I was just a little kid at that point. I know that really shows on my youth. I know, I know. But... I mean, in Oklahoma, we had all those big tornadoes. And so likewise, you know, with that, when all those destructions come, I mean, it's not nearly on the scale of 9-11 at all, but it brings the community together. The churches fill up for a time. But then as soon as they start to feel a little bit better, well, I think I'm doing all right on my own. I'll just keep going on my merry way. And so what would be a call to repentance is heated for a short time, but then... But isn't it, it's interesting, it says to meet your God mm-hmm. instead of what Jesus tells them at, when he comes back and says, I go to my Father and to your Father. And that's, that's a better way to have a relationship. Oh, I go to my Father rather than, oh, Israel, you're going to go to your God. Mm-hmm. I mean, normally in the Old Testament here, your God, you know, it's words of comfort of, I am your God, you are my people here. But clearly that's not the case of, this is your God. He's the judge right now, and you're going to prepare to meet him for that. Absolutely. Your thoughts, contemplations, reflections? All right. So then moving on to verse 13. So in 13 and, actually it's, it's like it's just 13, yeah. So in verse 13 here we get seven different attributes of God or things that he has done. So we'll name these off as we go. For behold, he who forms the mountains, number one, and creates the wind, number two, 
So this is God's continued work in creation. He's not just left them. He hasn't created the world and just kind of, here, I'm leaving. I'm going to be up in heaven if you need me, but I'm going to be far away. No, he forms the mountains. He creates the wind. So his continued work in creation. Number three, he declares to man what it what is his thought? Who makes the morning darkness? Number four. So he makes the morning darkness, which is a reversal of what normally he would do, if turn darkness into light at creation. Let there be light. There is light. Christ is the light of the world, bringing light to this darkness. Rather, he's making the morning darkness. So it's number four. Number five, and treads on the heights of the earth, Number six, the Lord. Number seven, the God of hosts is his name. So we have the Lord, Yahweh, and then the God of hosts, God of the armies, all this. So this military language being brought up again. So we have the language of him as a roaring lion. So this God of hosts is God of the armies, the heavenly hosts here. That is his name. So this is the one who is saying, all these things are going to happen to you. He's one who's formed the mountains, created the winds. He's done all these things. He makes the morning darkness. And he's the one that is speaking these things. He is the God, God of hosts. And what he says is going to happen here. So then that moves us, moves us into chapter 5. So this is going to be a bit of a clear break in his argument So here, starting in chapter 5, we get what's really referred to as kind of a funeral dirge. That's a language of the lamentation in verse 1 as a dirge. And so he's saying, "Hear Hear this word that I take up over you in the lamentation, O house of Israel. So again, that language of hearing, saying, hear this funeral dirge. And the Israelites are like, well, who died? He's like, oh. Funny enough, you should ask. Here, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Oh, it's, it's you guys. I'm speaking this funeral dirge as if you were already dead. This is your future here. This is what will happen to you. So he's fallen no more to rise. We have the virgin Israel, who's not brought forth children, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. So here in last half of verse 2, the forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up, that language of forsaking is that of like forgetting as well, so abandoning. So not abandonment may not be the best word, but forsaken on her land, so kind of left alone. So we have this, this fallen, this dead people of Israel here lying on the roadside, dead, no one's going to pick her up, left on the road there. So that's the image of this is the people of Israel. This is what is waiting for you. As if it's already the case, because here's the funeral dirge. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So there's just utter decimation of them. Of They went out as a thousand. They're coming as a hundred. So just a tenth of them left. Their armies wiped out. Their people wiped out to near nothing. Nothing but a scrap of an ear or a corner of a couch left to them. And that is what is waiting for you to the house of Israel. So that's the dirge itself. And we continue on. So we have this image of previously of Israel being spiritually dead, that many of them would perish. We'll see this continue on through chapter 5. Are there any thoughts, questions? As both, I know I'm still moving kind of quickly. But it's all kind of covering the same topic of here's all these different ways that judgments come upon you didn't repent, here's this image, here's this image of a, you know, dead person on the side of the road type of thing, or fish hooks being led astray, you know, all these images 
that are being brought up here. So here, as we move on through chapter 5, Amos's, at least commentators argue that he's using a specific structure to his argumentation from verses 1 through 17. And their argument is that he's using what's called a chiasm in, uh, in the literature there. So what a chiasm does, chi is the Greek letter, it's kind of like an X for lack of a better term. And so what a chiasm does is so it's focusing you in on the middle. So you start out and you have parallels at the front or at the top and at the bottom. Parallels, kind of a stair step. And you're leading it all down into this central point. So kind of to mentally bring your focus onto one thing. So that's what they're saying Amos is doing through this chapter. Before we get into all the text, we'll look at... I can, if you're interested in what the specifics are later, I can show you. But their argument is that the focus is actually in verse, the end of verse 8 of the Lord is his name. So that's the very center of this argumentation, this chiasm, this parallel structure that he's bringing into focus. So we have the lamentation, or the lament over the death of a nation, the call to seek the Lord and live, the accusation of no justice, the hymn to the Lord, and that all culminates in the center of the Lord is his name. So again, bringing into focus who this Lord is. Remember, it's Yahweh is the language here. Bring them all the way back to the burning bush of whose name are you? You know, what is your name? I am. So this is the personal name of the Lord that he gave to the people of Israel. So Yahweh is his name. I am. And the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, so on. So this is who he is. This is who is speaking to you. So you should listen to what I'm saying to you. So that's, that's a culmination of this. As you go, continue on into verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So we have this language of seek me and live. So this is the Lord pleading with them of seek me, return to me that you may live. He doesn't seek their destruction. He's, or he doesn't delight in their destruction. He's not saying, yes, I am happily wiping you out. He's saying, you're my people. I've done all these things for you. Remember, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've done all these things. I care for you. You are my chosen people. Seek me, please. Seek me and live. Because if not, here's what's going to happen. So we have this wonderful imagery of not this vengeful God, but rather a God who truly loves his people and wants them to repent and come to him. But he knows that all along they've been rejecting him through and through. So he's pleading with them that they would seek him and live. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Breaking out this fire, so we have this image of this destruction, this house of Joseph. You who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So you have the study note, or the manuscript note of, or to bitter fruit for wormwood. So they just turn this thing of justice, they perverted justice, to this wormwood, to this bitter fruit, even. So they've been perverting this justice all along. We've seen this with them oppressing the poor, doing all these things. And we'll see this continue on here in a few verses of different ways that they have perverted that justice. He who made the, the Pleiades and Orion, so these constellations, so he made these constellations, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who has these powers over creation. He is 
made the stars the constellations. He makes the night into day and the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So the Lord who has done all these things calls out the waters of the sea. Some may argue that he's kind of alluding to the flood here. So he's calling forth these waters. Another kind of slight imagery there of remember what he has done to all these people, to the earth in the past, bringing out that image to them. The Lord is his name. Verse 9, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So language there of reproving in the gate. So back in that day, the gate was kind of the town square. That's where all the movers and shakers were at. That's where business was conducted. That's where, you know, all the prophets would be doing all these things. We see that language in Ruth, if you recall, with Ruth and Boaz, Boaz with the kinsman redeemer going out, will you redeem her? If not, you know, here's the sandal and all that imagery. So that's all taking place in the gate. So that's where all this business was conducted, all these, these family affairs, all these things were taking place. So they, him who reproves in the gate. So the one who is reproving would be the prophets. So they are hating the prophets who are coming and saying, hey, repent. And they're hating that message. Well, don't we see that today of those who reprove, not in the gates, but just out in the country. They hate those who would correct because, well, that's judgmental and you can't judge. And so don't judge. Just let me go on my merry way and do what I want to do. So that same language of this hating, they hate those who would reprove. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Saw that even here in the 8th century BC, people hating the truth. They've been hating the truth all along. They'll continue to hate the truth until Christ comes again in his glory, and then the truth will be on full display, and they'll know for sure what actually is the truth that they've been ignoring and hating all along. So they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. So same idea of this trampling on the poor, those who are oppressing the poor, then the exacting taxes of grain from him. Some pull a connection to in Ruth, Remember the gleaners who are going out in the field, the poor. So after the harvest is complete, they're not to go back and do a second harvest and pick up all the little scraps. They're to leave those for the poor to come and glean from what is in the field. So that's how Boaz blesses Ruth. She has all these these pounds upon pounds of grain that she comes back with, and her mom is like, who's this guy that's letting you do this stuff? And... So that's how all that takes place. So some may argue that this exacting taxes of grain is kind of an allusion to that because we have the language of the poor just on the line above. So pressing the poor, exacting taxes of grain. So you're taxing that which they are gleaning just to get enough to have a little bit of bread or something. You're taxing them even on that small amount, oppressing them even further. Remember, it's the law of the Lord to leave that leftover grain that's on the floor to help support the poor, but rather they're oppressing them by taxing them, even on just those few scraps. So just all these different ways that they are turning justice to wormwood, you can call it that. So they're oppressing the poor in all these different ways. They've built houses, or you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell of them dwell in them. So from all these different ways that they've trampled the poor and exacted taxes, we've got to build all these great houses. Saw a couple chapters before with the summer house, the winter house, all of these things, this ivory, all this hewn stone from all that that they've done through oppressing those poor around them. So you've built all these houses. 
you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards to make great wine, but you shall not drink their wine. So you've done all these things. You've planted these great grapes in hopes of bountiful, beautiful wine to enjoy, but you're going to not enjoy those because destruction is coming. For I know how many of you are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So he knows how many their transgressions are. He knows all their sins. Each and every time that they've oppressed the poor, he remembers those times. He promises this destruction to them as a result of that. So he's saying, I, I've seen everything you've been doing all along, all these different ways. You haven't gotten it past me. Destruction is coming. Repent for that. But yet they will not repent. So they turn aside the needy in the gate. So again, that gate, the kind of epicenter of the town, where the things are going on. So they're turning aside. They're even forgetting the needy. Because after all, they've gotten everything they wanted from them by oppressing them, exacting the taxes. And so they can just turn them aside and cast them off at this point. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. So those who are prudent, those who are wise, so those are the ones who will keep silent. Because it's a dangerous time right now. So before, it was all the people, all the prophets coming and reproving in the gate. You've hated them, but they've been still proclaiming this truth that you may repent. They've been speaking this truth all along, but now they're going to keep silent. They're not even going to try to reprove you anymore because it's so dangerous for them that it's better for them to keep silent, not proclaim that truth anymore. You won't hear it. You won't even be able to hate it anymore because they're going to keep silent. They're not going to call you to repentance anymore. They're going to keep silent because it's an evil time. It's a dangerous time. Lord says, seek good and not evil that you may live. So it's the same idea of seeking the Lord and live. So seek good and not evil. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. So they've been saying all along, well, the God of hosts is with us. You know, we're doing all these sacrifices, all these great things. God is with us. Lord, you know, the temple, the temple, the temple, all these things. But how delusional they are that, well, we can have our cake, we can eat it too. We can do all these sacrifices to all these pagan gods over here, worship at these altars, but the Lord is with us. We're good. We'll be just fine. We don't have anything to be reproved over. We're doing the sacrifices just like God said, even though, yeah, we may be doing a few sacrifices to bail down the street, but hey, the Lord is with us. We're good. We're his chosen people after all. We're all fine and dandy saying, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So here we get that idea of the remnant. So it may be that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant. So here we still have that promise of the remnant. There will be a remnant. God may not be gracious. They still may be punished along with the wicked. But he may be gracious. He may not be. There's still that image, that promise of the remnant to come, from which the messianic line will continue. Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 16, the God of hosts, the Lord. So in case you didn't know which one the Lord is, it's the God of hosts, the Lord. Here's a threefold naming of him. Not Baal, not all these other gods, but the Lord, the God of hosts. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, 
into wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. So back then they'd have like professional mourners. You could pay people to come and do wailing and all this stuff. And so the more money you had, the more wailers and mourners you could have at your funeral and stuff like that. So those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. And the, the image of the angel of death passing over, so he will pass by in their midst. He may be gracious to the remnant, that he'll be passing through here. <clears throat> but woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. So again, the same kind of delusion of, well, the Lord is with us. So there's some that are even desiring the day of the Lord. Are they desiring the day of the Lord? Don't they know what that's going to entail at this point? They're so delusional that, yeah, we can't wait for the Lord to come back. It's going to be great. He's going to you know, usher us into the new Jerusalem. We're going to have a great earthly kingdom. It's just going to be all fine and dandy. Can't wait for the Lord to come back. And the Lord's saying, you nuts? <laughs> Don't you know what's coming? The day of the Lord? It's not going to be pleasant for you guys, you wicked ones. It's the day of Israel. Why would you have the day of the Lord? So day of the Lord, first we can see that in you know, 722 with the Assyrians, possibly 70 AD with the destruction of the Jerusalem, or even, you know, ultimate, the day of the Lord, final judgment. It is darkness and not light. So it's not something to be joyful about for you guys, for you wicked ones. So for us, this day of the Lord is not a day of darkness or anything like that. It's rather a great and joyous day. We're the ones that are desiring the day of the Lord. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come sooner, please. He, save us from all this trouble in this life. It's going to be a great and joyous day for us. But he's saying to you, you wicked ones, why are you desiring this day of the Lord? For you, it will be. it is darkness and light. As if a man fled from a lion, which he couldn't, can't outrun a lion, and a bear met him. So he's trying to outrun the bear or the lion, and then here comes a bear. So when he thinks he's safe from one trouble, boom, here gets, comes a lion or a bear after him. Yeah, so no escape. That's a good one, yeah. So there's going to be no escaping this judgment. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. So he goes into the house, and then there's a serpent here that bites him, and sure, in certain death at this point. The idea of the serpent, probably a venomous serpent. So he bites him. He's running away from a lion, gets eaten by a bear. He goes into the house, sticks his hand on the wall, and here's a serpent that bites him and kills him. So he just can't get away from this destruction. It's going to be darkness. Is not the day of the Lord. Here's a third iteration of the day of the Lord. Darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. And here we have what I was, for those of you who were at the 8 o'clock class, speaking about even the kind of this vain use and this vain thought that well, we can keep doing these feasts and do all these things and the Lord's going to delight in it. What we see in verse 21, I hate, as the Lord, I hate, I despise your feasts. So the Passover, all these things that the Lord has commanded them to keep. Well, they're worshiping all these other false gods or doing all these other things. And then they're coming here and saying, well, we're keeping the Passover. We're doing, you know, we're doing all these feasts. We're offering these offerings, grain offerings, these whole burnt offerings. Just as you said, it says, I hate them. I despise them now. They're done in wickedness, not out of following the law that I have given you. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So that delight is kind of the idea of the pleasing aroma, the imagery that we have of the burnt offerings being a pleasing aroma to the Lord, all these things. So he takes no delight in that. I myself take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So here we see seven different liturgical elements that he is rejecting. So first, it is the feast that we had in verse 21 in the solemn assemblies. So that's the second liturgical element. 
that he hates or he despises. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. So the language there can also be translated, word for though, can also be if. So even if you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. So even if you did all these things as I commanded, I'm not going to accept them at this point. Because of all the, th- the wicked things that you've been doing, with all the other false gods. So there we get to the third and the fourth liturgical element, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and he will not accept them. So the word for accept is the showing favor. So Lord showing his favor upon a people. So he's not going to show favor upon this people anymore in that way. He's not going to accept it. It's not going to be pleasing to him. He's going to take no delight. Rather, he's going to despise it and hate it for the wickedness that they've done. So we will not accept them. In the peace offerings, fifth element, of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. So the, the Lord looking upon you with favor, we have that in the Aaronic benediction. So we will not look upon them. We will not set his face upon it. Take away from me the noise of your songs, element six, to the melody seven of your harps, I will not listen. So these noising of the songs, these melodies that they have made to the Lord, he's not going to accept them. He's not even going to listen to them at this point. They're not pleasing to his ears. There's something he hates and he despises that now. 24, but let justice roll down like waters in righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So previously had all the drought that the Lord promised to the people of Israel. You're not going to have grain. You're not going to have bread. Your teeth are going to be clean. But here's something that will rain down, but not rain from heaven like I can send out, but rather justice will roll down like waters in my righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. So that's what's going to be given out my justice and my righteousness. Something that's probably not going to be so good for you guys, you wicked people. That's what he is saying. 25. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So while some of them certainly did, they did bring some sacrifices and offerings. People as a whole, what do we remember about the children of Israel in the wilderness where they always so faithful. Is that what we automatically remember? All the grumblings, all the times they doubted the Lord time after time. That's what he's remembering here is all those times that they didn't trust him. They didn't do as he had commanded. Instead, making these golden calves and all these things instead of following the Lord. So did you do that? No. You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And so here, uh, Sikath is, commentators say it's a Syrian god of war, and Kion, Mesopotamian star god. So these are going to be these false gods that they have created. One, uh, Reed Lessing, Dr. Lessing, in his commentary, points out that in the Hebrew, they actually don't have the correct vowel pointings for those false gods. So he's arguing that, in fact, they purposely mispointed it to just make more fun of these false gods. He brings out that it's actually the same kind of vowel pointing as, like, dung, essentially. And so they're just mocking these false gods of, these gods of dung, practically, are the ones that you've made for yourself. So these are the ones that you have made. So these are the ones that they've been, they shall take it up. So that's kind of what they would do is they would process their false gods. They'd have their statues, different false gods that they made, and they'd process out, process into war, do all these things with their false god going out in front of them. So here, you're going to be going out. I'll send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So I'll send you out, and you'll take with you your false gods before you. Not, you know, the Ark of the Covenant going into battle, but rather, here, take your gods of dung at this point. Take them into 
your exile, not into you know, all these battles that you're going to win because I'm with you, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Rather, how about you take these false gods with you out into exile nonetheless, not to you conquering these lands and gaining all these areas, but rather you're going to go into exile and you're going to take your false gods with you as you go. Yep, exactly. They're going to have to carry it with them. Yep. So can't you tell just how cheerful Amos is? Don't we love him? I don't think he's really doing the whole law gospel paradigm exactly as we would sometimes try to do today. You have the law of, hey, you're a sinner, but it's okay. You don't need to repent. It's fine. You know, you're forgiven. God's loving. Here he's being pretty, pretty strict here of here's all this that's waiting and we'll see in chapter 6 next week, woe to those at ease, at ease in Zion. So he's not done yet. So if they thought that all these seven previous oracles were good, Amos has more coming to them. So we'll pick up there next week if there aren't any questions. Final ones? All right. The Lord be with you.